Alright, welcome to Dadlit. I am Chris Ludwig, and uh, my co-host is Connor Boyle. But what do you think uh, your mob name would be if you were a part of a syndicate? Right, so I already kind of have a Irish mob name as Connor Boyle. Boyle is a very mobster name. But how about Connor the Ghost Boyle? Hmm. Explain, why the ghost? Because I'm very pale, for one. When I was in college, some kids called me Casper for a little while to kind of poke fun at me. So there's a background in the name. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. But also, I kind of come and go like a ghost. Like, you you may not even see me, you know? Yeah, all right. How about you? I've always been known for being loud, so I'm going to go with Loud Ludwig. (laughs) That's good. I, I, I like that, you know? I think the guys at the bar would talk about, like, oh, yeah, Loud Ludwig, he's at it again. <laughs> hey, Connor, do you know what my dad loves? Um, does he love you, uh, his son? Uh, no, he uh, crime. He loves he loves crimes. He loves criminal behavior. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves gun running. No, no, no. Uh, he likes crime media. Like crime shows and mobster flicks, like Law and Order, CSI, Goodfellas, Casino. Uh, he'd probably love Breaking Bad if he'd ever get over the hype and actually watch it. Yeah, my my father is the same. He has for years watched Law and Order and that uh, I think it's NCIS. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How about Jag? Do you remember Jag? Absolutely. My dad would marathon Jag. It was like almost the only thing he watched. And it kind of, I don't know. It was like, if you're so obsessed, like, why didn't you ever go into the military? But I never really talked to him about that. I think my dad is one of the people that introduced me to crime fiction. Not in, in terms of books, but in terms of shows and movies. Um, I definitely watched Goodfellas with him. And that was like my introduction to crime fiction. And then later, when I became uh, an avid reader, I-, I read some. So I guess like Lee Child stuff is crime fiction, sort of. Yeah, it, it is of of a sort. Yeah, my father. Anytime I mention some crime fiction to him, like he's like, "Oh yeah, I've read it." Although he doesn't really read like the piece of crime fiction we're gonna be discussing. Um, he reads more. Yeah, I was, like, I was gonna say the book. The, yeah. the book we're discussing today definitely fits this rap sheet, and it was a little different for me. I don't think I've ever really read like mobster kind of modern crime fiction. It was, it was interesting. For everyone listening, uh, today we are discussing The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yeah, by George V. Higgins. It is probably the best Boston crime novel ever written. Probably one of the most famous Boston crime novels ever written, and one of the most famous crime novels ever written as well. And it it is, we're calling it dadlit, it's a little bit different than some of the other books that we consider yeah, dadlit, so, so like Clive Cussler. For, for those new to this podcast and new to the idea of dadlit, what what is dadlit? Uh, dadlit kind of refers to boomer era literature that has certain characteristics, including you know hyper masculine characters. Um, it has particular representations of gender and sexuality. Really, it's dated. A lot of it is action and adventure uh, oriented. Yeah, it's like dated thrillers and crime fiction that's like pitched towards uh, middle-aged white men. Yeah, and Tom Clancy and Clive Cussler are great examples of this kind of literature. But this book, I think it, it stands out because there's kind of less to make fun of with this book. There's less for us to do our kind of snotty millennial critique of, of this yeah, sort of literature. Yeah, no, it's solid in terms of how it stands up, I think. I liked it. 
So you you suggested this book to me, and like I said, I haven't really read stuff in this kind of subgenre, and I didn't really know anything about it or the author going in. So do you want to tell me a little bit about the book, how you learned about it? and? Yeah, absolutely. So I started reading a lot of crime fiction in my early to mid-20s. You know, I'd certainly read plenty of, you know, mysteries and detective novels, but I, I hadn't really been exposed to a lot of literature that was really about criminals and the lives of criminals and I started reading more of it. I started reading authors like Jim Thompson and I, I uh, eventually came across this book on a list somewhere and I found it really appealing. I'm originally from Boston. This book is set in Boston. Uh, my father's from Boston and I hear a lot of stories about life from my father in Boston in the 70s in the 80s and so I was kind of compelled to check this book out and I just thought it would be a good dad lit book because it was very popular at the time it came out it's really highly regarded and I wanted to promote it to our listeners as well I think they would really enjoy it let me tell you a little bit about the author and the publication history so the author's name is George V Higgins he is a Boston guy himself he was born in 1939 in Brockton Massachusetts uh, he passed away in 1999 and he had a very successful career as an attorney, both a public you know, attorney and a private attorney. Throughout his career, he was, at different times, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He was the Assistant U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. He was a journalist. He was a columnist. He wrote a lot about Boston politics and Boston crime. He was a private attorney. He was a professor at Boston College and Boston University. And he was obviously a novelist and a creative writer. And The Friends of Eddie Coyle is his first novel. It came out in 1970. His third novel is also very popular. His third novel is called Kogan's Trade. And it was adapted into a movie in 2012 called Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt. Have you seen that one? Oh, okay. I didn't recognize it until you, you gave me the movie title. I haven't seen that, but I'm aware of it. It's a very quirky movie, uh, like a crime movie. I think it's really good, though. But, of course, Friends of Eddie Coyle was also adopted into a movie starring Robert Mitchum in 1973. So he his, his books were successful and popular. In doing some background research into George V. Higgins, I learned some interesting things, in particular that the University of South Carolina, their special library collection, has something called the George V. Higgins Archive, which contains pretty much everything he's ever written. You know, his manuscripts, journal articles, newspaper articles, book reviews, and correspondences as well. And uh, unfortunately, I, unless I'm mistaken or unless I wasn't able to access it because I'm not a student... It's, it's not digitized, but you can look at the inventory and just get a sense of how prolific he was and how interested he was in the law and criminal behavior. He wrote some really cool academic journal articles that I wouldn't mind getting my hands on. I, I pulled uh, two of the titles that I thought were kind of cool just to give you an idea of like the fact that he, he was sort of academically credentialed as well. Uh, here's one title, The Law and the Mob. Reflections on Tactics, Strategy, Policy, and Research. And that was an, an unpublished law review article he wrote between 69 and 70. And here's this other one, which I think sounds pretty cool. Omnicompetence and Omnibus Crime Control. The Policeman as Specialist. Um, and that was from the Journal of Criminal Law in 1969. So... He was a criminologist in his own right. You know, he the experiences... That's interesting, yeah. yeah. His uh, experiences as an attorney working with criminals, seeing the way the mob operated, and listening, most importantly, I think, to the way that criminals spoke, informed him as a creative writer. 
And as I mentioned, I think that definitely that definitely comes through in this. Like oh. the, the dialogue is so sharp. Yeah, um, he corresponded with a lot of other authors, including Stephen King and Elmore Leonard. Actually, I years ago I found this photograph online somewhere. I had a hard time finding it. Actually, I couldn't find it uh, when I was looking for it today. But it's of Stephen King in Fenway Park in Boston. And he's like standing in a tunnel, like, you know, one of the entrances to the actual seats. And he's mm-hmm. he's leaning up against the wall and reading The Friends of Eddie Coyle. You know, pretty cool image. If we can find that, maybe we can... Uh, we'll find we it. Share it. It's later. out there somewhere. Yeah we, yeah, we can share it later and the, the fans can look at it. But as I said, he also corresponded with Elmore Leonard, who's a very famous crime writer. He's, I think, one of the best crime writers. Now he wrote Rum Punch, which was made into the movie Jackie Brown. Uh, there's a Jackie Brown character in this uh, book, It's but it's a different Jackie Brown. Uh, uh, he wrote, I was yeah. wondering about that, if there was any sort of inspiration or connection. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I didn't see anything like maybe if I looked through those letters, you know, maybe next time I'm in South Carolina, I'll do that. Yeah. Why is that in South Carolina? I wonder, you know, I, I don't know, but I've noticed that it's like not uncommon for that to sort of be, be the case where like these the archives for things are not in places that you would assume that they would be. Wouldn't it be better if it was in like Boston College or Boston University? But who knows? Maybe there's a professor there that does a lot of research and, you know, assembled the archives. That could be it. Yeah, he also, this is so weird. A similar situation that I'm aware of is that like um, Theodore Geisel, the Dr. Seuss guy, he was also born in Massachusetts and his library is not in Massachusetts either. It's over in California. <laughs> yeah, I... I uh, I would guess it has something to do with maybe a professor at that at that location. I'm not sure, though. I just found that was weird that this guy had so much to do with Massachusetts and Boston, so much as, you know, worked there as an attorney, and that that city is not where, or that state even, is not where his library sits. That's so interesting. Yeah. I would bet that if you went to BC or BU, there might be some, like, special collection material, but this is, like, the archive. This is the mother load of Higgins' yeah. research material at I was saying one of the things they have there is a correspondence between him and Elmore Leonard, again, who's very successful. And just talking about his influence and his legacy, you can really see his style of writing in Elmore Leonard. You can see the the influence there. In particular, the dialogue-heavy mode of storytelling, uh, the use of criminal vernacular. And this is not unique to George V. Higgins, but something I think he does very well, especially in this book, is to sort of trace multiple characters multiple criminal characters to kind of give you a sense of uh, like a criminal ecosystem how everyone all these characters affect each other and the book the friends of eddie coyle elmore leonard has called it the best crime novel ever written like i'm not an expert on crime fiction i certainly haven't read enough similar stuff to compare it but just as a writer and as a person who reads a lot i fell in love with the way it was laid out it gets you immersed in the setting of gun runners and mobsters and informants and all that and it does all of that really well it's very tight there's not a lot of fat there's not a lot of extra um, yeah, yeah yeah it's a short book and i mean it's you know the edition i read is the 40th anniversary edition and i think it's 182 pages did you read the same edition that's that's the most popular one out there now that i've seen in in bookstores and in libraries is that it's got that orange cover on it uh no so i i partook in the audiobook which is what i do quite a bit and the narrator for it was fantastic he did all the accents really well 
it was really immersive and the audiobook I don't I don't know if I can see what version it's based off of but the audiobook was released in uh, 2011 and by uh, recorded books it's uh, narrated by Mark Hammer it's exactly five hours and forty minutes long, so not a not a very long read. I, yeah, you could kill that in an afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that the uh, narrator, as you just said, does the accents because, like I was saying, this book and Higgins' writing, it's very he writes in the criminal vernacular. And I, sometimes when you're reading a, a regional dialect or like a type of a very unique type of speech, the writer writes the uh, speech phonetically. You know, and yeah. like incorrectly, and so if you—that's very common with like country accents and yeah. New York accents. So when you're reading um, it, you're pronouncing it how they intend for it to sound. And Higgins does that very, very sparingly, I think, and I think that's like a smart thing. I don't. That's yeah. a good point. I was going to bring up is how I, I was wondering how he wrote the vernacular versus how this person added in the accent if it was like that. So that's interesting that this was a lot of the narrator's own inflection. Yeah, because I and I think that there that the when a writer like has a sense of atmosphere and place and the characters are well developed, that you don't need the R's to be AHs to know that it's not chowder, it's chowder, and you can yeah. kind of you don't need to be told that directly. And I think he does only that very you, well I think in this. Only does um, so if you're aware but, of the regional uh, dialects. I, if you're let's say, if you're let's say a foreigner, if you're from. Britain or or your fear from the islands and you come here and you haven't seen a lot of like movies if you haven't seen The Departed if you haven't seen a lot of movies that take place in Boston I don't know if that would come through in just reading it well I think you'd I think you would have to I, I would I would guess a lot of readers even if they're from you know the the UK or from you know not from the US would understand it's a Boston novel and you know they, right, what I'm saying is, if you've never heard a Boston accent before, you wouldn't know what it sounds like, yeah. and uh, that would that would still ring true if it was written phonetically. Because if you had the chowda written with a h, I don't know if you'd read it with a Boston accent. Chowda, why is this misspelled? Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 well, I'll talk a little bit about the um, first edition real quickly. So this came out sure. in 1970 by Knopf, and uh, the cover of the first edition I think is really cool. Just to describe it, if you can imagine this, at the top of the hardcover, the, the cover art, is the a sort of navy blue silhouette of a 38 snub nose revolver, you know, like a smaller mm, revolver. Yes, this cover. Yeah. And inside that is the title, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, a novel by George V. Higgins. And below that is, uh, it looks like an oil painting of a face. And it's a very strange looking face and it's sort of looking at an off angle, like away from the front of the cover. And Yeah, it's like a there's like a weird incline to it where the chin is jutting out and everything kind of like falls back towards the forehead. Yeah, it has these like kind of earth tone striations to it. It looks very contemplative, I would say. If or a, like if, anxious. If a man's face could be a cliff. <laughs> His nose kinda of looks like a cliff, but um it almost looks like a clay sculpture. I would describe it as it. There's something yeah, like sort of disturbing about it. And um, I think that I think it might be pastels. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Um, probably right. And it's all on. You know, it sort of fades to black at the at the margin or the borders of the face. And I'm guessing it's the face of Eddie Coyle because he looks pretty distressed. And I think it's a really good cover for this book. If it communicates that it's a book about. You know, because there's the gun there. It's like this is a book about 
guns and bank robbers and criminals, but there's something kind of heavy to this cover, so it also communicates that it's about the emotional lives and the psychology of these characters. And I was thinking about this. If you took that blue silhouetted the gun off the front of it, it would look like a Penguin Classics Dostoevsky novel. Like, it has that yep. sort of weight to the uh, illustration on the front. And, you know... The illustration on the one that I listened to is very different. And we can go over that in a second. Well, I'll tell you about the, um, the edition I read. So I read the 40th anniversary edition put out by Picador, and the cover of it has an orange and white text and a black and white color scheme as well. And it has this angry guy in a skull cap pointing a gun. And I like this cover less. Again, you know, these are the sorts of things that do happen in the book. There are guns, there's all the sorts of, there's some action. But tonally, I, I don't think it represents like how... That's so interesting, yeah. yeah how like... All, all of these covers, all of these covers are different because the cover I have is like an orange and yellow background painting with a man in a suit with a red tie with his arms out to his sides, kind of out in like a cautioning, like a stop motion or a, like a hey, hey, like hands up kind of a motion. And he's uh, blindfolded, which when you've read the story, you know what that pertains to. But going into it, I had no clue who, who this was on the cover and what this was about. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the title as well, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Eddie Coyle is ostensibly the main character. He's sort of uh, the the character that a lot of the story focuses on. But the book, the, in terms of the, what you see in the book, it's 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 about the people surrounding him and yeah, the actions. I, I wasn't sure. Eddie is referred in two ways in the book: uh, Eddie Coyle and Eddie Fingers. Three ways, and actually. I would say they often refer to him as the Stocky Man at the beginning of the book. He's the stocky man? I understood that I did, to mean... I didn't pick up on that at all. Yeah, that... I was wondering <laughs> about that. They do that towards the beginning of the book, is that you meet a lot of characters, and they're described generically, and then the next chapter, they're described specifically, like, with, you know, proper nouns and names, and you're like... I must have missed something there, because I didn't pick up on that. I thought it might be, but there wasn't anything that confirmed it until partway through. But... In my opinion, the main run-through character, the character that is true throughout the whole thing, is Jackie Brown. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I agree. I think that he is probably the most significant character next to Eddie Coyle, because yeah. I think he is sort of a younger version of Eddie Coyle. I, maybe we should describe who these characters are, and this might be a good opportunity if you want to provide like a rundown of like what is this book about, what is this setup. Oh, it's about cheese sandwiches. Well, there's a lot of talk of cheese sandwiches at, at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you have to put mayo on it, man. If you don't put mayo on it, you're not getting any flavor, and it's just gonna it's just gonna taste like rubber. Did you Did uh, you know that before you read this book? Not as the way they describe it, but I do put mayo on my cheese sandwiches. But they are vehement about that that you have to put mayo on your cheese sandwiches. But yeah, it's about that. It's also about the ins and outs of nudie pictures. Uh, you you do learn a little bit about the business of, you know, um, sort of storefront pornography in the 70s and selling, you know... Which is, which is also interesting because that's a thing that existed before the internet, and I don't think that is a thing anymore. I mean, I'm sure there, there are still pornography stores that you go to and, you know, adult video stores, but selling it as like an illegal trade 
from like a bodega the way they kind of in, uh, imply it's being done here mm-hmm. it, i feel like that's an antiquated crime yeah, like it's like that's a contraband yeah and uh, they talk about whether it should be contraband and like what these people are doing with it but to my to my point it's not about cheese sandwiches or pornography but a majority of the book is done conversationally it's always things that people have heard about something that's going on or things that are being discussed during a gun sale or uh, during a meeting between two characters and it'll often be very conversational like this where they'll they'll talk about cheese sandwiches for a bit and then they'll talk about the characters in the book, you know, the other characters that they don't. Or they'll talk about the ins and outs of, hey, I know this guy. You know what? You know what the darndest thing? He sells these pictures. Uh, oh, the, they're pictures of girls? Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're a picture of a guy in the middle of a park with no clothes on. Uh, and and they, they go through it, and it's, it's interesting because you get the opinions of these characters, which helps you kind of understand the character and get, you know, who they are beyond just a, a plot device. Yeah, they're they're rendered in a very sort of realistic and petty and sometimes rambling way because it's like that you know people in this book this which is I think it's striving for some realism. People don't speak in neat paragraphs; they kind of ramble about bullshit and then get to the yep. point. And I think you know what it remind all that stuff you know the the talk about cheese sandwiches. It's like doesn't that remind you of like Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction? And the cheeseburgers. I when I when I was when I was listening to this, I got the the definitely impression that um, Quentin Tarantino got some tips from this. That he he learned a little bit about writing dialogue from this. And it's interesting too that I I think that they both include food talk in it because it's like you know I, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend about this about Tarantino and how 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 much food plays a role in his movies you know from talking about food to like you know being served food and like it's kind of funny to me that sometimes that writers often like oh we need banter like we need that like well what do people talk about like what's part of you know your everyday life and it's like oh eating you know it's a okay this this is this is a little too close to home because i was recently had a midlife crisis realization kind of a thing that when you're younger you have tons of hobbies and you discuss those hobbies with people but as you get older you don't really discuss television shows with each other because no no don't tell me i want to watch it myself or oh yeah i already saw it whatever and what i find in my adulthood that i discuss the most with my friends is cooking yeah same same here you know and i it's cooking has kind of become a hobby for me as i'm getting older um for sure yeah so so yeah the the story is told through kind of a lot of chit chat a lot of you know just kind of bs in some standing around and just hey did you hear about that thing that happened to that guy but um yeah the, the main character is eddie Coyle, and he starts off the story like a little bit under the gun to begin with like I think he he had in a year before this starts he had been arrested for transporting what what seems to be like did booze it was booze and I got the impression it was like hijacked booze right like yeah it was a stolen truck I believe of of booze and he gets pulled over with it yeah um, in New Hampshire but you don't yeah you don't know too much of this right away uh, the the story is kind of cleverly told in in that you you start with a couple of gun deals and it starts off very conversational of this is how a gun deal goes down and it's different different clients throughout the first few chapters and you get 
Eddie talking to some people. You get Jackie talking to some yeah, people. And Jackie Brown and is Jackie the is the drug is the not the drug. He is the arms dealer. He is and he's young. He's like twenty six years old. Yeah, and, he's, yeah. Uh, which I didn't realize until near the end that he was that young. Uh, but yeah, so it starts off with just some gun deals, and you don't really quite know what the book is about yet. And then as those gun deals go on and as characters talk to each other through these conversations, you glean that, yeah, uh, Eddie, I don't, you know, one person's like, I don't know if I can trust Eddie, you know, he was arrested, or I don't want to do that with Eddie Fingers, you know, uh, oh, I heard Eddie Fingers is talking to this guy, I heard he's got some of these, you know, and you start to get a little bit more of the background of these people, and yeah, uh, somewhere in the middle of the book, which I think is interesting that we get so much of the plot beforehand somewhere in the middle of the book you do find out that eddie Coyle is sort of an informant yeah and i i thought that was kind of it, it, the relationship between the police and the mob in this is actually i think that there's some interesting details added to it in particular there's a conversation that happens where it seems that eddie Coyle has been giving information to the police for some time but n- nothing of note you know, he's yeah, almost nothing just that's been valuable enough to, to get him off the hook. And it almost seems like he's doing that just to kind of keep keep the police at bay and see if he can give them low level information and if that'll be satisfactory. Now, is he making money off of that? I don't know that he's making money off of it. There is another character named Dylan who is associated with the Italian mafia in Boston who is making a little bit of money giving information to the police. Okay, because there's a part later in the book where they talk, the two characters are discussing that Eddie like is spending money. And they're like, oh, I got the impression that he was going to jail. Why would he be spending money if he's going to jail? And I, well, maybe he thinks he's not going to jail. I don't think that he would have made that much money being an informant, mostly because I think that the de- detective in this, he's actually a federal agent who is kind of the main cop character. He is the one that everyone talks to to give information to the to the authorities. His name's Dave Foley, and I believe he's an ATF agent, alcohol, tobacco, and yes. firearms. And he is giving uh, this guy Dylan like 20 bucks a month for some information. So I don't think it's like a big, you know, I don't think there's a big operation here to like buy money. And also, you know, Eddie Coyle is kind of he's an older criminal, career criminal. He is more associated with the Irish mob, although he kind of does work for all sorts of people. And he doesn't he doesn't seem too bright. No, he's not. He's not like a very. And I think that's why this is an interesting book, because it's not about like the 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 Godfather. You know, it's a book about a a not so bright guy. A grunt. Yeah, yeah, it's about a grunt. It's about one of the guys out there getting dirty and getting caught. And he's he's not too good at it. And uh, he's still trying to give them little bits of information without screwing himself or other people over. And there's a little bit of a, a nice discussion between him and the agent about, um, oh, I could give you this information, but that's going to put me in a bad spot. And he's like, what, would it be enough? And the guy's like, I don't know if it would be enough. He's like, well, well I don't want to give it to you if it's not going to be enough. And yeah. And uh, so, but the, and he, so he kind of, so the detective kind of goes, well, I'll go find out. And, and if I, if, if I find out it's enough, uh, you're going to tell me. And Eddie's like, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and Eddie and and uh, Dave Foley, the agent, when they're first introduced, uh, when Foley is first introduced, they kind of, uh, it's almost like implied that, oh, you're like they're friends, but that could just mean that um, they're like, you know, th- that could just be a way of talking about like, 
they're like we've known each other for a long time it's like well you know that it could just it, I, I didn't know if they actually did know each other from like earlier in their lives maybe they went to school together or if that was just or a, if it's just a turn of phrase yeah, yeah yeah so Eddie Coyle is buying guns from Jackie Brown and he's sort of like middle manning uh, arms dealing and yep. the reason like Jackie is sort of a, he's sort of a hot shot because he's able to get these handguns that come directly from the manufacturer which is you know, uh, good for the criminals who end up using them because there's some concern that when you're buying illegal weapons or you're buying them on the black market, you might be purchasing a handgun that was used to commit another crime, a previous crime. So if you get caught with that gun, you could potentially be held responsible Take the fall for all of that, for the, yeah. the whole history of the gun. So Jackie Brown is kind of prides himself on how per- like careful and professional he is. And he is able to get these really, you know, nice, clean weapons that don't have any history to them. And he kind of let... But know. not always, but not always in the amount that the people want. Yeah, and this is... And, not, and not always with ammo. And that's important. Yeah, so he... And that's a sort of consistent thing in this book, I think. You see characters who are like, I'm careful. I need to be real careful. But there's always a slip up. They always, you know, mess up something small. And it's sort of like... I, you know, it, that that's all it takes sometimes for the cops to get onto them. But Jackie Brown lets on that he is going to be selling some machine guns, and he says he's going to be selling them to. I forget how exactly he describes it. It it turns out that they think it's the uh, the Black Panther Party. Yep, uh, it's it, it's implied. Yeah, and Eddie Coyle, you know, he he hears Jackie Brown kind of mention this casually and that's the information he brings to the ATF agent he says hey there might be like a machine gun deal going down and machine guns you know in the Higgins kind of talks makes a point to include this in the story it's like it's a life sentence you know for that kind of weapon Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the information he is he's he sort of teases Foley with and he says, you know, and it sort of seems that, you know, he wants to find out more about this. You know, Foley basically says, you know, if you put me in, in the right spot at the right time to make that arrest, yeah, you know, when you're you're about to be sentenced for that that alcohol, you know, for the, the booze uh, hijacking crime in New Hampshire, I'll make a phone call on your behalf and let them know that you're a good guy and that you're helping us out. Yeah. In the, in the meantime, in the meantime there are a series of bank robberies that take place. And you you get to see these, uh, at least a little bit, and a group of guys will come in, and they will come in uh, before the bank is opened, and they will take everyone hostage, sort of, and they'll take the um, bank manager hostage, and they'll tell all the staff that they are to continue uh, as as normal, and if someone asks why they can't get a withdrawal, just tell them, you know, we're having a problem opening the vault. And that they won't hurt the bank manager if everyone follows those rules and don't ring any alarms. And that they're going to take the bank manager with them to a point, and then they're going to drop the bank manager off somewhere. At that point, everyone is free to do whatever they want. They tell the bank manager that they have their family. Like, and they, oh, we've, yeah. we've got your family. If yeah. you don't come with us, we'll hurt your family. And if you ring any alarms, we'll hurt your family. And as long as everyone follows what we say, no one gets hurt. Which works uh, to an extent. You know, you can only yeah. do that so many times without something happening, you know, that, that kind of messes up your plan. Yeah. 
this is revealed later on. It's sort of, you kind of know that this is the case, but it is confirmed later on in the book that the guns that Eddie Coyle is buying from Jackie Brown, he is selling those to the bank robbers because they use new weapons every time. Yep. And that's this is another one of those things that it's like, this is how the criminals are very careful and how some of them are not so careful is that they throw the weapons in the, I think it's like the Charles River probably, after each job you know even though they don't even fire them in in most of the jobs yeah they get, get rid of them it's like we got to be super careful and there's one character who is one of the kind of two leaders of the bank robber uh, uh, gang and there is talk about how he is sort of kind of strange and it's like he really wants to hold on to these guns he, he's like hey i bought that gun i paid for it i'm keeping that gun i didn't even fire it but his his other partner is like, dude, you, you got to get rid of that thing. You know, who cares about the, who cares about guns? You know, we're, we, we got to make money and stay out of jail. And going back a little bit to the, the relationship between the police and the mobsters. And, and again, I, I was able to, to kind of figure out that it's mostly, you know, Eddie Coyle seems to be most associated with the Irish mob. But the Italian mafia is part of this as well. And they kind of like work together on stuff. They all seem like they're part of the same like network of criminals even though there are like distinctions well, it's, it's called the uh, the syndicate right yes mm-hmm. that being like the greater criminal like network which is it's a word that it's a word that's used in a lot of crime fiction is syndicate in um the parker books yeah right i was gonna say <laughs> syndicate is a nice buzzword to throw around if you're writing crime fiction but it's basically a mob it, it's generally a little bit more business associated than some mobs and mafias there's a little bit more of like a, uh, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's hard to describe what I'm trying to articulate, but like a mafia, you know, it could be like a family. It's like, it's uh, like the, or the it could just be corporation, or it could just be a bunch of guys that get together. A mob can be a bunch of criminals that team up, but a syndicate is generally implied to be like, there's a, there's a little bit of more secrecy to it. You don't quite know who all's involved. You don't quite know who all is a member. Some of it is upfront businesses that are taking part in these, these crimes, and it's it's a little bit more devious than I would I would say than like a a, a a mob family. And so one thing I kind of found it was an interesting detail, and I'm like, this has to be based on real life occurrences. But the ATF agent Dave Foley is talking to another guy, and he's saying how, yeah, you know, Eddie Coyle told me there might be this gun deal with the Black Panthers coming up, and the two agents are remarking on how the increase in Black Panther activity has been like the best thing in the world for the the mafia because it gives them someone to rat out to the cops whereas in the past you'd have you'd kind of have to convince mobsters to rat each other out they can now yeah. rat out the black panthers and in the big the the sort of more extravagant crimes of like you know buying machine guns and how that's actually kind of like the best thing in the world for the mafia it's very useful for them I thought that that probably had to come from Higgins' own, like, experiences and observations. Experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, I mean, if he's working in that trade or, you know, in, in law as a attorney, you, you'd probably see a lot of people for a while turning in each other and then suddenly a trend of them turning in Black Panthers. And so, I, it's, yeah, right, it's an interesting detail, an interesting kind of commerce. Yeah, like the, 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 the way this book deals with the authorities is like a commerce. It's, there's information being exchanged as if it was a deal which is true to an extent yeah and i think that there's a lot to to kind of unpack there in terms of the the ideas of like deals and fairness and trust well now connor let's say you are the head of a 
a gang or a syndicate, let's say, and I work for you, and I'm trying to get clean and get out, it would behoove you to, to keep me because if I'm free and I'm out there, I'm of no use to you anymore, and I have all sorts of uh, privileged information. So if I'm trying to get free, you're going to string me along, right? You, okay, just one more job, and then you can go. Or, hey, you know, I just need a little bit more money. you got to pay a little bit more of your debt off. Then you can go. And there's always another step to it. Well, but now, that's what the cops are doing. Yeah, you point that out, you know, uh, in a lot of gangs, and, you know, like, it's like sort of blood in, blood out. Like, you don't, if you want to leave, you're dead. That's sort of like the, the yeah, and but, for but kind but of for cops, good reason. The cops are doing a, they're handling it very much like a mob where, hey, you give us a little bit more, and you can go. Yeah. Oh, you just need to give us a little bit more. I think that... And then you can go. The cops and criminals, Higgins is good at drawing those comparisons and yeah. how, how Eddie Coyle gets kind of sucked dry, you know, and it's there's there's what he wants. He wants to... He does not want to go to jail for this like this liquor deal that he got busted for. Um, well, and it's, it's crazy because another one of the characters, Dylan, tells him, he's like, how, how, much, how much time are you looking at? And he's like, a couple years. And he's like... That, Ah, you could get out of here in eight months. Like, yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, Dylan is an important character as well. I, he becomes more important, and I kind of like at the beginning. I thought the character of Dylan was this kind of schlubby bartender, but he's actually quite uh, important and kind of uh, he has some clout in the more clout in the criminal world than than I thought at the beginning. He of the feels book. he feels he feels the closest to being like a retired mobster he's still in he still works he's still part of the syndicate but he's not like out there doing shit he's a lot more of like a like a mentor yeah he owns a bar he's a bartender that a lot of these gangsters hang out at and he is sort of like a switchboard operator because people frequently call the bar and kind of leave cryptic messages for him to relay to other people and they're like oh is that guy there tell him his best friend called him and to meet me at that place at that time um, so he, he serves that function and through that, through sort of being the switchboard operator and just being, you know, around, he kind of keys in on information. He sees Eddie Coyle. He, he hears the phone calls coming for Eddie Coyle. No, seems he can detect that Eddie Coyle is up to something. And he is also talking to Dave Foley. And Dave Foley is mm -hmm. interested in what Eddie Coyle's up to. And, and Dave Foley kind of knows immediately. Once once Eddie tells Dave, hey, there might be a machine gun deal going on, Dave, who's a smart cop, is sort of like, well, how would he know that? The only way he would know that is if he's associating with gun runners, which means he's buying guns for something too. And uh, Dylan kind of confirms that. He's like, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm not that close to it. But yeah, Eddie Coyle's up to something. So, you know, the, the walls are closing in on Eddie Coyle. He, he is trying to work with Dave Foley to, you know, to be a stool pigeon for this machine gun deal. And he's also being watched by Dave Foley and the character of Dylan, who is a stool pigeon for Dave Foley as well. Yeah, so uh, about the midway point of this book, the cops come down on Jackie Brown. They catch him. They catch him with a trunk of machine guns and he goes away. And, and it turns out the machine guns were not for the uh, Black Panther Party. They were for the what appears to be some sort of like hippie extremists. Did you did you have any thoughts on that or like who they were? I don't know. I was uh, maybe like I think that might be like I don't know about implications, but I think that might be inspired by like the Manson family. 
Oh, interesting. See, I was thinking it was something like was it like the Symbionese Liberation Army and like the Patty Hearst thing. It's I'm sure could, I, could could be. When did this come out? When did when was this published again? 1970. That would have been just after the Manson family shit. Yeah, I I mean it seems like there would be plenty of radical, you know, groups in the early 70s that this could apply to but it, it, it turns out it's not yeah. the Black Panthers it's these sort of hippies in, that are living in this van but uh, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you so yeah he's about to do the deal and the hippies are kind of jumpy they're like you know let's do it now and he's like no chill well, out well also he didn't get them ammunition and they got pissed that they're like what, are, what good are these guns without bullets which, and he's like that's not my problem which is, I can try to get you ammunition a, like at a later date but at this point in time I can't get you any ammunition I mean, I, it's a fair complaint on their part I'd be pretty it pissed is, too it I'd is like, but they, they kind of bug out they kind of bug out at that and they're like ah and while that's all happening um, he, he's being watched Right, because Eddie, because he let, so this is, I think, an important part, too, is that, you know, Jackie Brown is like, I'm the most careful guy out there. He has all these sort of things he does to throw off any potential tail, yet he keeps, like, just dropping information to Eddie Coyle, doesn't really suspect that Eddie Coyle might be, you know, might not have his best interest at heart, and after a really long... Well, and I think... I think that comes from youth. He's still pretty, like 26, we said. And he, he might be smart. He might have a lot of interesting steps about like moving locations and going to secondary locations and uh, mm-hmm. making sure that he's not going to get uh, shot by these people coming to buy the guns from him. But there's something to be said about experience. And I don't think Jackie's experienced enough with other mobsters to understand the the value of information. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is that, you know, and I might be reading into this, is that before he gets popped by the police, he's running around. He it, it, it's he's like has this like super busy day um, where he has to go pick up a bunch of guns here, make this sale there. And he's complaining about like how tired and frustrated he is. And he's like really exasperated. And he meets up with Eddie Coyle to sell him another batch of guns. And he's you can kind of tell he's like, you know, not thinking straight. He's distracted. He's tired. And he lets on to Eddie Coyle, like, I got to be at this train station in two hours. And Eddie's like, that, you know, he kind of intuits that, like, uh, that's the machine gun deal. And he calls up Dave Foley and, you know, rats and, you know, gives him the more specific information. Yeah, he tips him off. Yeah. And that's, and that's the cops are watching him and eventually make a move on him. Well, he's taking a nap, actually. Yeah, I know. I was kind of wondering if, like, he was, like... Because I didn't remember, I had barely, you know, I, I the first time I read this, was, I didn't know he had the guns on him. I thought he was going to have the guns in a secondary location, and that the cops were going to try to come like knock on his window and get nothing. Yeah, they would open the trunk and it's like empty. I was expecting that to yeah. happen. You know, to your point about him being younger and inexperienced, and you know, Eddie Coyle, as much of a kind of not bright guy as he is, like he is older. I wanted to read this passage that I thought was really interesting. So at one part in the book, you know, Chris, as you pointed out, he gets these clean handguns, but he's not able to get them, you know, as quickly as Eddie would like because they come directly from the manufacturer. So they have to be careful about, you know, how they get them. And Eddie is supposed to sell another unit of handguns to these bank robbers. And Jackie tells him like, hey, I'm not going to have them in time. And Eddie basically tells him, you know, sets him straight and is like, you better have, you better get me some guns. So this is that conversation where uh, Jackie basically tells Eddie, you know, I'm not going to have the guns in time. 
I'm reading from this. It's chapter 10. Uh, now look, Jackie Brown said. Now look nothing, the stocky man said. I'm getting old. I spent my whole life sitting around in one crummy joint after another with a bunch of punks like you, drinking coffee, eating hash, and watching other people take off for Florida. Well, I gotta sweat how the hell I'm gonna pay the plumber next week. I've done time and I stood up, but I can't take no more chances. You can give me a whole ration of shit and this and that and blah blah blah, but you, you're still a kid, and you're going out and coming around and saying, well, I'm a man, you can take what I say and it'll happen, I go through. Well, you're learning something too, kid, and I advise you, you better learn it now, because when you say that, when you get me out there all alone on what you say, well, you better be there in back of me, because once you say it's going to happen, it's going to fucking happen, and if it doesn't, you got your cock caught in the zipper, but good. Now, I don't want no talking shit from you. I want ten guns from you, and I got the money to pay for them, and I want them tomorrow afternoon at the place where we were before, and I'm going to be there, and you're going to be there with those goddamn guns, because if you're not, I'm going to come looking for you, and I'll find you too, because I'm not going to be the only one that's looking, and we know how to find people. So that's the young Jackie, you know, get it basically he's a lot sharper he's a lot sharper than eddie and he's younger there is he he's sharper yeah but does he have kind of like the chutzpah that eddie has because basically in that in that scene and i think the dialogue reflects it a little after, bit afterwards he's like this situation is a problem but it's your problem not my problem like you need to fix this and get me what you said you were going to get me it's not my problem. It's your problem. And I think that's like, you know, that's a part of the criminal lifestyle is it's like force and might will kind of dictate, you know, who does what and how things are handled. It's like, you know, and Jackie Brown's like, what do you want me to do? I can't, you know, I can't just pull these things out of thin air. And Eddie Coyle, you know, in, in a in a non-criminal setting, you'd be like, all right, well, that sucks, but I guess I'll just deal with it. But Eddie Coyle's like, I don't care where you get, the, you know, I, I, I just want the guns. And that's all, you know, conversations over. And, and actually, this leads to Jackie kind of uh, do, you know, the more desperate entirety gets, like the more poor the, his decisions are, because he ends up going to this sort of old biker uh, contact he has and buying some guns that are very hot. They're, they've been, they've been yeah. used by multiple people, it seems. And they're not clean, but those are the only guns he can find. Yep. So the the more stress he he seems to be under, like he starts to slip, you know. And his tr all, for all the tricks he does about changing cars and waiting in places and phone, you know, like the sort of phone tag, phone relay he sets up, it does not matter. the The mistakes he makes are crucial. Yep. Yeah. So he gets he gets bagged, and the cops tell Eddie that hey. That was great, but that's not enough. And Eddie's been out of shape. He's like, "What? Uh, you're, you're kidding me! Like, I, I gave you that." Uh, and so he, they need more. And he, Eddie, knows about those robberies. Mm -hmm. And he could tell them, but he's he's hemming and hawing and not sure. Um, he, he knows that if he keeps keeps this up or if he lets the wrong thing slip that other people are going to know that he's uh, an informant and that could get him dead so he tells Foley he's like hey I could tell you this thing but I got to know that it's going to it's going to get me off uh, it's got it's going to get me free and he's like I, I, I might meet up with you 
tomorrow to tell you this thing. Uh, if I show up, I'll tell you. Uh, if I don't show up, uh, I, I change my mind. Yeah. But this is where I'll, I'll meet you. And Foley goes and talks with other people. And basically, he, he knows that it's not going to get him off. He knows that, that, that Eddie's still going to do time. And he's still like, all right, well, I'll, I can get the information from him now. Yeah, what he says to Eddie is like, well, you know, listen, I, you gave me that information about the machine guns. Thank you. I called the attorney general or the district attorney in New Hampshire where the crime was committed. And they were pleased that you did that. But ultimately, like, this was a crime in Massachusetts. What good is it for that district attorney? You know, exactly. they basically says, it's a yeah. different district. It's a different district. You need to do a favor for this district. Yeah. And, yeah, and he's like, we, you know, we want... He's, it's like basically, well, it's a start, is what he says. Like, you know, the, and as you point out, it seems like they want to just get everything out of him. He's, you know, he's not, he's in no. Dave Foley gives him the impression that he's in a position to bargain with information, but he's not. It's, he's it's not. a dictatorship. He's just taking advantage of these informants. He goes to meet Eddie, and Eddie doesn't show up. And in the meantime, the bank robbers get caught. Yeah. The police know where they're going to be someone else rats them out they are there waiting with guns and when the bank robbers show up there is a shootout and someone is killed well what yeah and there's two more bank i think there's three bank robberies total in this book right is that, I, I believe that's the case i think that sounds right there's there's one that goes off uh without a hitch they mention another one and then there's one that goes badly and they they kill a guy and they told him it's like that's them's the brakes. We told you not to hit the alarm, and the guy hits the alarm. Yeah, and then they're planning the 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 last bank robbery, and they're doing their typical bank robbery mo. They're going to kidnap the bank manager at his home and hold his family hostage. And so they show up to his home, yeah. and the cops are inside. Yeah, because one of the bank robbers, Scalise, I believe his name was has a girlfriend that he does not treat very well. In fact, he treats her very poorly and they kind of have a falling yep. out and she ends up, it's kind of implied that she knows a, like that she's sort of, um, she's, they, they describe her as being very promiscuous. So uh, she's a flight attendant and she's talking to this cop at, at the airport that she seems to know or had a relationship with. And she's sort of in very vague terms is like, Hey, m there might be something going on on in Lynn, Massachusetts, like, you know, probably next Tuesday, you know, and, and so she is the one that actually gives up the information that the police take action on. And yeah, they should, the yeah. police are waiting in the house. They just arrest those guys. There's another character who is a younger member of the bank robbery crew and he is positioned at the bank because they all kind of have different roles. There's like a team of bank oh, robbers. Oh, is it at the bank where that happens? I was under the assumption it was at the house where that happened, but yeah. Yeah, and so what happens is the cops arrest all the guys at the house, take their disguises, then head to the bank so they can kind of get closer to the other bank robber who's waiting for them there to kind of reconnect with them. And that young guy who's waiting at the bank is like, oh, hell no. And, you know, when the cops say, put your hands up, he starts shooting and there's a shootout and he gets shot and killed. And lo, yeah, yeah. lo and behold, and he's, he's some, he's somebody's kid. Like he's important. Yeah. And so all of that goes down before Eddie's supposed to meet up with Foley and Eddie doesn't show up and Foley leaves the meetup point and goes and gets like some, uh, like a sandwich or whatever. Gets and that a paper. cheese sandwich from Rexall yep. that he hates. It's like the shittiest cheese sandwich ever. Yeah, because they didn't put mayo on it. He, he describes it. He's like, it's like two pieces of tile. Yeah. 
And yeah, so that paper that he picks up says that the bank robbers are caught. And he's like, oh, well, that's that. I guess even if Eddie showed up and gave me the information, it's of no use. Too bad. We jump then to the bar. And Eddie is at the bar. And he's contemplative and thinking, and Dylan's talking to him. And they, they talk a little bit about some of what went down. And Dylan's like, yeah, I would really like to know who ratted. And there's a phone call. And Dylan goes and takes the phone, and you, you're never really told who's on the other line. You just know it's the man. Well, even before that, he he has, like, a meeting in a car where they're like, we think Eddie Coyle ratted. And that's where they that's when they reveal that the, the young bank robber who was shot and killed was, like, the not if not the son, then, like, he, his mentor was, like one of the big people in the syndicate and they recruit, they yeah, recruit so, Dylan to take out Eddie to poke around. Yeah. To poke around and find out. And then now at the bar, that phone call comes in and they want to, they want him to take care of Eddie. They, they need to get rid of him. Yeah. So he invites Eddie to a game. See the Bruins um, hockey game. Yeah. And Ed, Eddie, Eddie agrees. He, he could use the distraction and they get to the game and there's like an empty seat and uh, and he's like, "Who's this seat for?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, no, uh, my friend that got us the tickets had another had two extra tickets. I invited some kid to come. He's not here yet. He's gonna miss the whole game." And this kid shows up and says something about like, "Oh yeah, I had trouble getting the car," and it's implied that like that you know he's he's really young and he doesn't own his own car. And he had to borrow someone's car, but I think it's a different reason. And yeah, game game goes by. They drink a bunch. Eddie's Eddie's really drunk. They go get in the car, and Eddie kind of uh, passes out. And Dylan is in the back seat, reaches down to the floorboard, pulls out a twenty-two, puts it to Eddie's head, and tells the kids like, "Hey, you know, you know, drive, drive fast. This is where you're going." And while they're on the road, he unloads the clip into Eddie's head, and just keeps shooting. And the the kid speeds up, and he's like, "Hey, hey, hey, slow down." He's like, oh, I just didn't expect it to be so many shots. Mm-hmm. And that's why he uses the twenty-two. He's like, if it was a thirty-eight, you'd be deaf right now. I think that'd be probably their ears would hurt a lot anyways. Firing any kind of gun in a car is going to be pretty deafening. Yeah, point blank like that. Yeah. yeah. But also, it, there's something to be said about using a twenty-two because a twenty-two, it's less likely to be a through and through. So you, you have less of a chance of just like shattering the front window or having the bolts go flying into other traffic and stuff you can you can shoot the person and it's going to bounce around in their head or, or lodge in their body yeah does the trick uh, he's very thorough though i was surprised that it wasn't just like a double tap he unloaded the whole the whole thing and uh yeah they they drive the car to a location where there is a like nearly identical car they swap cars. Yeah, and, and they're they're and thi- yeah, says, they're thinking there is that people have seen this car sitting here like all day. So they're not gonna so be like suspicious if, if cops, of it. If, exactly. If the cops patrol around the neighborhood, it's just gonna look like the car that's been parked there all day long and they're just gonna look right past it like it's part of the scenery. Yeah. Which is pretty smart. And they, they and, leave Eddie uh, Coyle in like the passenger seat like well. They he's just kinda they tuck him in underneath the dash there. Yeah, they cram him down into the, the floorboard. Very yeah. undignified and, end. Um, yes, very. And then they leave. And we jump ahead again to um, the court hearing for Jackie Brown. Jackie 
pleads uh, what not guilty. He pleads. And, it's uh, very funny because he has a, a defense attorney who seems like he's very kind of like meek and perhaps very old. And they're like, "How does your client plead?" And he's like, oh, oh, "No, not guilty." And Jackie Brown kind of gives him this dirty look and is like, "Not guilty." Like he, yeah, he's like. Yeah. <laughs> In case you didn't hear that, you know, this old this old guy who's like got a whispery voice. Yeah. And then I think Foley uh, shows up at that point and he's sort of discussing with his uh, some someone he knows, like, well, what do you think is going to happen here? You know, what, what is he going to get sentenced? Is he going to get, you know, how, how well, is this going to work? He, he goes to the prosecutor. The other lawyer oh, that's right. goes to the yeah. prosecutor. Yeah, the other lawyer, the defense lawyer goes to the prosecutor and goes, hey, uh, we'd like to meet up about some plea deals that we want to make. Uh, he he could you know he could be an informant. He could give you some information on some guys, and uh, the other person's like, nah, I don't know about that. And they just have a very off the cuff discussion about like how this never ends. How he'll get somebody uh, arrested, and he's just going to go to jail. It's not going to get him any sort of uh, benefits. And then that guy is going to probably do the same thing. And it's just an ongoing cycle. Yeah, it's they they're they're frustrated at the end. He's and uh, what I didn't. Yeah, okay, so there was all this talk about machine guns being life sentences, but they're kind of certain that he's not going to do a life sentence. But well, yeah, because he's like twenty six. <laughs> they so the there's the these two attorney. The you said like there's the prosecutor and the defense attorney. I think, and what one of them says like in another year or so, Clark said he'll be in again here or someplace else, and I'll be talking to some other bastard or maybe even you again, and we'll try another one, and he'll go away again. Is there any end to this shit? Does anything ever change in this racket? Hey, Foss, the prosecutor said, taking Clark by the arm. Of course it changes. Don't take it so hard. Some of us die. The rest of us get older. New guys come along. Old guys disappear. It changes every day. It's hard to notice, though, Clark said. It is, the prosecutor said. It certainly is. That's actually the f- those are the final lines of the book, which... Bleak, you know? Like, it's... Yeah. It's, it's Like I said, it's it's... It's a trade. It's 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 a commerce. They they are dealing in people's lives and in information, and they it, it's an ongoing cycle that just continues. And, and also that like you know for every Eddie Coyle that gets taken out because of this lifestyle, there's another one like there's an, a Jackie Brown who is just kind of getting their start in it. And I, I yeah they either go to they they either go to jail or they get killed. Yeah, and and. Presumably, Jackie Brown will end up like Eddie. Yeah, he'll end up like Eddie Coyle years from from that. You know, from from then, it's not going to end because there's always information to trade, money to be made. Well, the information you the information you give is never enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you, once you're a police informant, you're either always a police informant or you're uh, you're in jail. Like that, you're not going to get free. They're not going to let you go based on the amount of information you give them. They'll tell you anything though. They'll give you a sweet story. And I think that's one of the major themes of this is is the challenge of getting out of the criminal life when you're a career criminal. Um, it's not a job you can retire from, you know, especially if you're or, if you're associated with organized crime. Uh, you carry so much with you. You carry so much history. You become a walking liability for your fellow criminals because you know you still know where the bodies are buried, and your your past can catch up to you. It, it either by the cops finding out something you did. Or by your fellow criminals finding out that, you know, or getting uncomfortable with the fact that you have leverage against them. And like you pointed out earlier, like the the cops and the criminals occupy the same exploitative space where they're they're kind of, you know, it's that's the consequence of being, you know, involved in the lifestyle. 
Yep. And it's also a good example. I think it's a good reason why why there is such brutality in the criminal life. It's because it's because it's dog eat dog. Because if I'm not screwing him over, he's screwing me over. You know. So that's why there's a, a, a lot of lack of empathy. But that's why I think this is really interesting. Because again, the friends of Eddie Coyle. Another theme that is part of this is I think is is the question is. Can there be honor and friendship and trust amongst thieves or criminals? And is there really some code of conduct that, like, they adhere to? Or is that only go as far as, like, it actually serves their own personal interests? Well, and it's interesting, too, after the fact, after when there's that discussion with Dylan and Eddie in the bar, after um, Scalise and the bank robbers have been taken down... Eddie talks very fondly of them. Yeah. He talks to them like friends, and they are the friends of Eddie Coyle. And it, you can see throughout the story him struggle with the who he's going to rat out or if he's going to rat them out. So yeah, it, the book has an apt name. Yeah, you know, it's funny that that's like the kind of emotional conflict that, it, you know, the, the biggest one you can point to is like he's struggling to figure out if, he, if he's really going to do this. Well, at the same time, everyone's doing it to him you know and or they're working with other criminals to be like we should you know he needs to get killed he he messed that up or he said that so it's there's this sort of it's just this sort of hopeless system and one part i found interesting talking about like codes and honor and rules it's interesting that like these criminals seem to have some rules um, within their sort of uh, their professions, we mentioned during during one of the bank robberies, uh, one of the bank employees uh, triggers the silent alarm as as the bank robbers are kind of getting ready to leave with the money, and one of the bank robbers sees it happen. I actually thought this was like a really like intense scene. He's just like, "What did you just do?" And the guy's like, "Nothing." He's like, "What did you do?" He's like, "Nothing." He's like bullshit you just triggered the alarm and the guy's like no i didn't and he 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 like murder he shoots the guy he kills them he shoots shoots him a few times and then they leave and later on there's a conversation between the bank robbers and he the guy who shot the the bank employee who triggered the alarm is being criticized they're like you didn't need to do that we were we had the money we were getting ready to leave there was no reason for you to do that if that had occurred at the beginning of this bank robbery where we didn't have the money yet, you would have been more more correct. It would have been more acceptable for you to do that because we need to scare people and we need to kind of get them to be compliant. compliant. Yeah, compliant. And I'm like, well, I mean, what's the difference though? Like he murdered that guy, but they have this kind of weird system of, of ethics. And, you know, the most obvious one is like, you don't talk to the cops. But everyone is talking to the cops. So it's like, as a criminal, why would you trust a fellow criminal? You know, these criminals commit crimes against each other. You know, I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting, interesting part of this book is they, they try and create this. Uh, there's a there's a sort of criminal conduct, ex, conduct expectation in this. And it's sort of shown to be like kind of arbitrary. It's like it doesn't, don't, you know, every person should be out for themselves in this system because... You can't trust anyone, and you're probably being screwed over too. Yeah. Did you pick up on any other themes or ideas in this? No. Most of what I, I already brought up was the the very conversational tone of it. Uh, the structure I thought stood out, where you are getting introduced to the 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 world through these deals. Then you are seeing what the deals are being used for, as you see the the 
bank robberies happen. And then after all of that's going on, you see the takedown of Jackie Brown, and only at that point is when you find out that Eddie is an informant. And I think that was really clever in that you don't suspect that throughout most of it. Once you do know that, a lot of the stuff that you encountered, a lot of the conversations make a lot more sense. And then all of the resolution kind of happens very quickly Yeah. after that point. I kind of did um, sense that he was an informant. And I agree with you, though. Like, there are times where you can tell when he's talking to Jackie Brown, like, oh, he's kind of, like, trying to, like, coax him into giving information, but in a casual way, like, oh, what's your, what are you doing over there? Oh, I'm going and selling this to this. And he's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, okay. Like, he, he tries to get Jackie to spill information. Yeah. I like the structure. I like the conversational tone of the whole thing. And the the discussion at the end stands out to me like uh, we talked about law and order earlier it's like one of those scenes in law and order where you get to see those candid discussions between lawyers how casually they talk about the whole thing just as much as the casual conversation has played out throughout the rest of the book you get the casual conversation between criminals through the whole book and at the very end you get a casual conversation between the attorneys and it's the same thing yeah i i actually um i wanted to share kind of a story that is kind of a Boston story. It might be a, a good yeah. way to sort of end this. The art kind of uh, this is a this is a book or it's a true story actually. So I'm from Boston. I I was born there. I didn't live there very long. I you know my family we moved to New Hampshire, then we moved to South Florida. But both of my parents grew up in Boston in the you know uh, 70s and 80s and 90s. Actually no 70s and 80s. And so my my father has a big family, or you know he has a lot of brothers, and he spent a lot of time kind of. Uh, he was like a street kid, you know? He spent a lot of time hanging out around the neighborhood and kind of got to know everyone. And he was telling me about a friend he had. I actually think they went to high school together. But um, let's just call this friend Charlie. I don't remember their name, but we'll just call him Charlie. And Charlie uh, played hockey with my dad in high school. And my dad was saying that it was a known and an acknowledged fact in the school, in the neighborhood, that Charlie's father, for for a living, to make a living, was a bank robber. That's what his dad did. That was his... No shit. And it was his dad's... The, the way my dad described it, it's like, it was his job. You know, like some people's parents are... You know, my dad worked for the post office. Some people, you know, they're engineers, they're dentists, whatever. It's like, there was a certain, I don't know, complacency or acceptance of crime and people with criminal reputations within the community and you know there is a obviously there's a history of like you know whitey bulger and i think it was like the hill gang in boston and there was you know uh, in the 80s i think there was like a an irish gang war so I, I like that this book is sort of set in a time and place in boston where crime was you know, I won't say it, it wasn't, it doesn't seem like people were accepting of it, but it was a little more transparent and it was, I don't want to say out in the open because a lot of the stuff is secretive here, but you know, I just thought it was so crazy. I'm like, you know, that someone could be a bank robber and like there was a certain acceptance of that. I, you wouldn't see that today. I, I don't think, no. No, that's wild. It, well, even just hearing about someone that you know being a bank robber, even if it's like a friend of a friend or a father of a friend, that's bank robbers you know that they exist but they're 
there's something of like fiction. They're they're a thing of the past. You think about it. Like I don't think about bank robbers still existing today. You you hear about people attempting it and getting caught. But yeah, if I if I had a friend that told me that, or if that was like a general fact on the block that someone I knew had like was the son of a bank robber, that's nuts. That's crazy. So, yeah, I think ba- you know, in terms of like criminology and like forensic psychology and stuff. Uh, it's really interesting to read about serial killers, but I'm I'm trying to uh, learn more about different uh, like psychological profiles of different kinds of criminals, and bank robbers are a very unique kind of them. I have this book. Um, I'm about to go on away for a trip, and maybe I'll read it. It's called Norco Eighty, I think it's called, which is about these these bank ro- these kind of like hippie bank robbers. And the author wrote this this sort of a uh, brief article I was reading a few we- a few months ago actually about Los Angeles and the highway structure of the city and the proliferation of like cocaine use in the 80s and how all those elements were basically very conducive to bank robbery like you could rob a bank jump on the highway and be in a different part of LA you know uh, I, I guess you know the, the big thing is that LA traffic sucks you know he was saying that you can get you can do a quick getaway because the highway pretty much goes everywhere in LA so I, I think mm-hmm. bank robbers are really interesting. Um, well, and the traffic there is so crazy. If you if you're in the right place at the right time, you can get through, and then everything gets blocked up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the the bank robbers in this are secondary. I mean, that you know, they we you, we do get some insight into them. They're just doing it. For, you know, they do it for the money. They're they're trying. The guy Scalise is trying to, or Scalise, I'm not sure, is trying to retire and move to Florida. Or, or yeah, Miami. You know, have you ever? <laughs> this is a weird question. I was going to ask you: Have you ever thought about uh, the life of crime, and if you could do that? Um, I mean, I think everyone thinks about robbing a bank at some point, unless you're a rich person and you don't need to think of those kinds of things. But I've often thought, like, oh man, I wish I had more money. What could I do to get to make more money? I don't know. I I've never really fully thought about like how I would survive if I were to take that kind of life. Uh, I don't think I would make it. Yeah, I don't think I would make it either. Unless unless I, unless I went full cabin in the woods off the grid. Because I could do that. My background, uh, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've road tripped my whole life. Like, I, I, I would be... I, wouldn't, I don't think I would enjoy it. I don't think I would enjoy living in a cabin on the side of a mountain... Uh, uh, because I had to. Yeah. I might want to do that someday. I might want to do that someday to retire, to escape and do that. But like, I don't want to do it to escape the law because that's got a certain type of pressure mm-hmm. that comes to well, it. Well, one of the characters in the book, uh, right, it lives in a uh, little trailer kind of, I got the impression it was in like a quarry or somewhere in Orange, Massachusetts. And, you know, it's, it's, at times it's described as kind of like, oh, it's kind of a cool place. But then it's like, you wouldn't want to live there you know, full time, like, you know, long term. Right. And it's, I would, I would want to live on a mountain in the woods, but I wouldn't want to do so under stress. And if you're on the run, even if, even if nobody knows you did it, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. And I wouldn't want to live like that. Well, that's one of the themes we discussed is it's, you know, you can't, there's no end to it, you know, unless, unless you've committed the perfect crime and you're a hundred percent certain. Yeah. Unless you stick someone else with the crime, and someone else takes the fall for your crime, they're always going to be looking for you to some degree. There's always going to be a cold case out there or something. And that's just unnerving to think about. I don't, I wouldn't want to live that way. 
Yeah, I part of wh- why I don't think I could do it is that, you know, the idea of like victimizing people, like even if you're robbing a bank and you're like, I have no intention of hurting anyone in that bank, you know, like shooting anyone in the bank. It's like, you know, I, w- I probably wouldn't be able to get out of my head like I, maybe I ruined that bank teller's life. Like that was very stressful for them. And they I kind of. Oh, I want to think about that. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know why I want to think about that. But like, I feel like robbing a bank unless you hurt somebody um is sort of a victimless crime. You stressed people out for a day, sure, but they're going to have a story to tell their family. They, they might need to go to some counseling, but, like, as long as no one got killed or no one got injured, that money's insured. Like, everyone that goes to that bank didn't lose any money. But, yeah. Just the bank suffers. But what if the cops show up and start shooting at you? Like, I wouldn't want to be responsible. Like, you know, it, I don't necessarily... Well, that's different. That's different. Now someone's getting hurt. Yeah, and it's also like, well, I don't, you know... I don't want to shoot a cop. I don't want to be responsible for that. Like, even if they're shooting at me, I don't want to shoot anyone. I want to shoot anyone at all. I, what I was thinking about actually is that the way that like I could see myself, the way I can imagine people becoming criminals. It's is it's like, you know, desperation. You need money, whether you're in massive debt, you have uh, a really serious addiction issue, or you you need money and drugs. Like, when you're so desperate you can kind of forget about those things like consequences or you know hurting someone else yeah that, that's the only way I, I mean for instance like i've been having some car trouble and i've been having a had a big mechanics bill and i paid it but i was like you know if i didn't have that money this like what would i do like i don't know what i would have done um i just probably would have let the car <laughs> sit wherever it was until I, I got the money but it's sort of this like you know it was an insight i'm like i could go and rob that liquor store and you know have a couple thousand bucks in my pocket to pay for this what's well, well that's that's the thing about crime right most crimes are out of desperation yeah uh, so, or so they say that's what they say but I, i've witnessed that not firsthand but like i you know i lived in new york for five years and you see how people live differently and you see people on the subway who have come from very different walks of life and you watch people with uh, lowly jobs people who are couriers people who are deliverymen people who are uh, work at bodegas, people who uh, shine shoes, people who uh, you know, all types of menial labor and uh, you can understand why someone might get desperate you can understand why someone might might rob somebody, might steal something I don't remember where I was well, going it's sort of this, like, like it's not personal it's, it's business, it's not personal it's like yeah, it, most of the time it's not personal. I, there are definitely crimes that are crimes of passion. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, but but in terms uh, of like you, robbing, you need, mugging need, someone, I mean, it's like I just yeah, want but money. Hold on, but hold on. You you need money, and you hate this one guy that said something wrong to you at a bodega. You're gonna go rob his bodega. Yeah, like it can be it can be personal, There's but victimology. Um, yeah, I, I work in electric electrical work, and I uh, generally work in a lot of like mansions and upscale houses. And I was privy to a conversation between two interior decorators and a person that was helping them pack up and move. That was like a professional. I think she was a. She moves wardrobe. Like she she professionally packs up like expensive clothing and moves mm-hmm. it, which I didn't even know that was like a thing. And they had a very, a very privileged, biased conversation about the state of things in this country and the state of certain cities and stuff and how like New York is getting and I didn't say anything because it's not my place and as at my job you don't say anything to your clients really unless they talk to you um, 
but I wanted to <laughs> because they were talking about New York and I've lived there and they're like, oh yeah, no, it's awful and the crime is on the rise and uh, all this stuff and they were judging these people and I was like, you don't understand these people. You've never had to work a day in your life. You've never had to try. You've never been worried about how you're going to pay for your car. You've never been worried about how you're going to pay rent. You've never been worried about debt. Uh, you've never been worried about that guy that you owe money to on the side of the street. You you don't know what desperation looks like, and you don't know what stress looks like. You're stressed because you think this person is going to rob you. It was very uncomfortable and I, I wanted to say like, hey, you don't understand these people. Everyone has you know a, a good reason for for doing it, even if it's something bad that they're doing, even if they're gonna if they're gonna hold you up at knife point for a couple of bucks. That person's desperate. If they had what you had, they'd never need to do that, and they never would. If there was more, if, if there was better, I'm mean, get a little bit political here. If there was better pay, yeah. If there was better benefits. If there was better distribution of wealth across multiple ca uh, castes and multiple systems, mm -hmm. people wouldn't be desperate, and there wouldn't be as much crime. Yeah, yeah. But the more that the the more desperate people are, the more crime there's going to be. Um, the, it reminds me of something. I think it was in Goodfellas, where uh, Ray Liotta's character Henry Henry Hill, I think it's Henry Hill, maybe, uh, is saying how. You know, us wise guys looked at those working stiffs and were like, "What? That's like a living hell. Like, who who the hell would want to do that? Like, I make money, and I don't have to get up at and punch the clock at eight, get home at seven, and worry about my bills, worry about this. Like, I if I want to go drink today, or if I want to go, you know, visit my mistress, or go to the pool, or play poker with my friends all night, I'm gonna do that, and I'm also gonna make a lot of money, and you know." I think part of that is like a, a component of that is it's like, yeah, in some ways the the working stiff lifestyle can be so unattractive and unsatisfying. Like, well, this is almost the opposite point you're arguing now, because now you're like that's the the point of view. The same kind of entitled discussion coming from a criminal, a person who's well off and and made. They're a made man. And they, they are belittling the white-collar person because of how confining their life the blue, is. It would be the blue-collar person. And yeah, I guess so, yeah. Uh, I would look at it either way, because even a white-collar worker has taxes. Sure, and sure, sure, sure. Are beholden to. Yeah. Um, and that's like going to a desk job every day. That's a white-collar thing. That's that's a living hell. But but it's, it's true that what I just argued... If people, if everyone was well off, if everyone was paid a living wage, if everyone had enough money to pay rent, mm -hmm. there would still be crime because there would be those people that enjoy getting their money a different way. There would be those people that view a desk job or view blue collar work as a living hell and would want it the easy way. But, you know, I guess I, I agree with you. But I think that, you know, as you're saying, if there's more social safety nets and if there was something like universal basic income and, you know, a higher minimum wage. Not even not, not even necessarily that. Just pay a living wage. Yeah. If, if jobs paid a living wage and you didn't need to have two, three jobs to survive, uh, you wouldn't be desperate. Yeah. People would be comfortable. People would be comfortable. And when, when they're comfortable... They're just fat and happy and spending money. They're not worried about, oh man, I need I need another couple hundred dollars, or I'm in a tight spot. Let me figure out how to get this money. I also think though that the the sort of working life um, 
would not seem as miserable because I think part of what's miserable about the sort of uh, nine to fiver and most people actually work from like eight to eight to five or eight to six is that even if you do that, it's not enough. Like even if you, you know, bust your hump 40 plus hours a week, 50 plus hours a week, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have enough money to pay the bills and to be financially, you know, okay. And to be, to, to not have financial anxieties. So if all those things were there, I think it would kind of improve, you know, for me, it certainly would improve the idea of like work being a working person. That's that's why I was incredulous at this conversation that I witnessed because they were discussing how things have fallen apart since COVID and since quarantine. I'm like, do you understand how many people were out of work? Do you understand that there wasn't a rent freeze? Do you understand how many people lost their apartment or uh, have been so stressed out about how they're going to make ends meet because their job fired them or laid them off or isn't open or is paying them less money like they didn't choose to go out and commit crime it's not their lifestyle you can't judge the crime of a city based on oh these people want to live this way no nobody like i said unless you're a a made man you don't want to live that way um i have this one quote i wanted to read from the book and it sort of um i think it sort of speaks to how you know, we're talking about how they, they, these characters want to leave these lives. They want to retire, but there's so many things holding them back. The cops are leaning on Eddie Coyle. He's, you know, there's a lot of reasons why he can't just ha- have a clean cut with the criminal life. And I think one of the, this is a, maybe a lesser one, is that these criminals in this book are very unsavory people. Like, they're abusive. They're very, like, I'm not, like, I have no issue with, like... Yeah, Scalise's not great. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Coyle is not a great person. Uh, you don't really know enough about Jackie Brown's, like, outside life to know... He, seem, get he seems like he's, Jackie, like, a young, but... suave guy who perhaps has not been as coarsened by the criminal life as everyone else, but I... I, I... Right, but what I'm saying is you don't get enough of his uh, enough of his outside of the crime life to know if he's a good person or not. Sure, yeah. There, there's a scene where, like... Eddie Coyle interacts with a, a a non-criminal person, and I actually thought it was kind of funny, but it was also kind of telling as to, like, well, even if he did get out and move to Florida, like, he'd still scare people. So he's he's made, he's been on the phone in this phone booth for a while, I forget who he's talking to, but he gets out of it, and there's, like, a lady waiting to use the phone booth, and she's kind of pissed at him, because he's been in there a long time. So, uh, here's that section. Um, Eddie Coyle replaced the handset and the receiver carefully. He opened the door of the booth and found a stout woman, about 50, staring at him. It took you long enough, she said. I was calling my poor sick mother, he said. Oh, she said, her face immediately relaxing into an expression of sympathy. I'm sorry, has she been ill long? Eddie Coyle smiled. Fuck you, lady, he said, and the horse you rode in on. I thought that was so like, oh my god, like, <laughs> like yeah, I can, I can imagine him in Boca Raton at the country club retired and just like scaring the fucking shit out of everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we've I think we've gone w- well beyond covering this. Uh, I wasn't expecting to get so philosophical. Well, you um, want to talk about how we would cast this movie if we were, were if we were adapting it into a film? 
Yeah, let's cast off. Yeah, let's cast off. So it was uh, made into a 1973 film directed by Peter Yates with Robert Mitch- Mitchum, uh, famous Robert Mitchum. It's a that's a it's a pretty stacked cast. Yeah, he though. played Eddie Coyle. I want to watch it with you. Uh, I think I think maybe we'll watch it and share either our real time commentary or or we'll, uh, we'll we'll post a follow up about the movie. Yeah, it, it, it star studded. Peter Boyle plays Dylan. Um, Steve Keats, who I, I mean he. I just had never heard of him. Perhaps he is well-known as Jackie Brown. Richard Jordan is Dave Foley, the cop. Um, do you want to go through and see who you would cast for, for each role? We'll each, uh, we'll, we'll do, I'll do one, you do one? Yeah, we'll cast off. All right, so uh, for, for, the, for the titular role of Eddie, um, I put Paul Dano. He's a little bit younger than what I would normally view as Eddie. And, and in fact, my age groups between Eddie and Jackie might be a little swapped, but I could not, I could not break the image in my mind of Paul Dano being this like meek, kind of not too smart criminal that's been nabbed by the cops and is an informant now. Uh, he, he would be very interesting to see as that. Um, I, I picked someone who was a little more age, I think age appropriate for the role. Cause I saw him as kind of like an older kind of like schlubby looking like not yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mitchum yeah Robert <laughs> Mitchum um I had yeah uh, Robert Mitchum two people in mind for this one is Brendan Gleeson um okay the other is this actor Ray Winstone I think his last name is is pronounced and he played Mr. French in the movie The Departed he kind of looks like a, a little bit young he's only I think two years younger than Brendan Gleeson, but he has the same look. He's this sort of stout, little paunchy uh, Irish guy who, you know, uh, just has this sort of tough guy look to him. But he also looks kind of old and a little like, you know. Now, now, you, you, you're making him paunchy. He's supposed to be the stocky man. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> but I think both of those actors play someone who c- can play characters who look like they're kind of been put through the ringer. Um, okay. Yeah, I could see that. I could see both of those people in that role. All right. Here's so we were talking a little bit about this earlier, and I think we were in agreement. If this is adapted into a movie, the Jackie Brown role would be like that's the role you'd want to get as an actor. I think that could be like the standout role for a character because it's a a, or for an actor, it's a younger. They, I think Jackie gets the most screen time in terms of how often they're on the page. You'd, you'd put them in a really um, cool costume, you know, like a, a cool, like, 70s, like, you know, like, leather jacket. It would be, you know, it'd be a cool role. Yeah. Uh, who did you put for Jackie? All right. I picked Miles Teller. Um, Ooh. Yeah. He's, he's a perfectly punchable face. <laughs> well, he's younger. Physically, Jackie Brown is described, I think they describe him as short with dark hair, and he wears kind of, like, moccasins with, like, like frayed edges. I could totally see. I could totally see Miles Teller in the courtroom at the end, being like, "Not guilty." Yeah, he can kind of. He can. I could see him at least trying to go toe to toe with Eddie Coyle in like a sort of you know a verbal disagreement. Like he could give it back to him, but he's also young enough looking that like, you know, he could he could do that role. Who did you have? All right, so I have two. Um, first of all, when I was listening to this and trying to think of a cast originally originally i I for some reason couldn't uh unsee uh, because of the way the dialogue works with um jackie brown i kept thinking alan aldo would be a really fun gun runner 
like just the way Alan Alda talks, uh, you know, from Mash. Yeah, like but a y- a younger um, Alan Alda. Yeah, like a younger Alan Alda being like, "Hey, man, listen, uh, you want these guns? Like, <laughs> yeah, um, I can I can, but, I, I can go uh, go somewhere else and sell them." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, casting it as a modern day movie, I I went with two directions. One, Jeremy Piven. Um, I could I could see Jeremy Piven being a fast talking uh, Jackie Brown. He's a little bit older than my casting for Paul Dano, though, so like I said, there'd be a little bit of an age reversal between those two roles. But instead, I, I think my final choice for Jackie Brown, I'm gonna I'm gonna swap the gender on that. I'm gonna make Jackie a Jackie and make it a girl, and I'm choosing uh, Diane Guerrero. I don't know if you're familiar with Diane Guerrero. She um, has been recently popular because of her role in Doom Patrol. She was also in um, Orange is the New Black and a couple other things. She's very, very talented actress. Uh, I could see her as like a, a, a tough mob-connected woman. Yeah, that's a good pick. I've I've watched uh, some of Doom Patrol, but she has a good look to her that I think that it would be it would be interesting to see her in that role, and it would be very interesting to switch it around because not only would Jackie be contending with like sort of the age discrimination from Eddie Coyle, I'm sure Eddie would probably be like, what's a, you know, like the, the gender dynamic would be interesting too. Cause um, they would try and take yeah. advantage of that as and well. I had the same thought that it would be very interesting that it would also make her a little less, a little less likely to be a gun runner. I think that would work in her favor as a gun runner that she wouldn't catch as much of the, the public's eye as someone who might be driving around with machine guns in her trunk. Yeah, it would be interesting. I could imagine some like smart dialogue about how like how careful she is and how like that's an asset to her her trade. That's good. Yeah. yeah. All right. So next up, how about uh, ATF agent Dave Foley? Well, I had a little fun with this one, and I cast Dave Foley, the actor. <laughs> I was like, "Isn't this a real name?" And I looked it up, and yeah, Dave Foley is a comedian. Kids in the uh, hall. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what he looks like now is pretty much a cop. I think he could fit into that, like a, a plainclothes detective kind of look very easily. And I think I think he could also be uh, a good person to, to try to like wheel and deal and talk a person out of information. And it's just funny because it's his name. Yeah, he he's got a good he's got a kind of interesting face. I, I, I you know, and I've talked about this before. Sometimes I just like actors that look different look interesting you know like it, it goes a long yeah. way so for for the atf agent uh dave foley i said ben mendelson um oh i almost i almost cast him in a different role in this that's a good pick that is a really good so pick. actually interesting note he is in the movie killing them softly the the other uh, higgins adaptation based on kogan's trade but i just think you know i saw him playing a cop in the uh, hbo series the outsider based on the stephen king book and I thought that he just does it well. He has this kind of... Mendelssohn is really good at playing an authority figure. I think because there's something kind of intimidating, but very, like, human about him. Like, he, he he's not like an authority figure like... Um, like the cop in Inherent Vice, like who's just like a monster, like a like a ex marine kind of drill instructor personality. He has this sort of I'd describe him as menacing quality to him. Yeah, uh, who'd you put as Dylan? Okay, the bartending veteran kind of mentor. So I I didn't cast him as as a much older actor or a, a character. I picked out Shea Wiggum. 
Who, who's Shea Whitman? He appeared in True Detective. Uh, he had a smaller role in that. He was like the, the revivalist preacher. He is also in the movie Cop Car, which actually, if you're a fan of uh, crime fiction, Cop Car is a really cool movie. Uh, he was in Cop Car. He was in um, Boardwalk Empire. He played, I think, like a sheriff in that. He's just got this, like kind of cool look to him he's he he usually people i could see that he looks like a bartender yeah he looks like a bartender i knew actually <laughs> how about you who did you have uh i picked colm meany okay i've i've heard that name before but who colm meany is famous as being uh chief o'brien in star trek the next generation oh but, yeah um, he has also he's also played a villain a few times in a few things and he's i always love him as a bad guy and this role lands right in the middle of bad guy, but also like a, a person you trust. So I think he's perfect for that role because he has that that sense of um, experience about him. You know, I could actually see him as a as an Eddie Coyle. Yeah, maybe. I, I like him better as the guy that kills Eddie, though. <laughs> I think he'd be good as that, too. Um, I can see him being like, come on, let's go catch a game. Let's get out of here. Come on. It's on me. Yeah. Okay, so uh, another character, uh, Jimmy Scalise. This is one of the main bank robbers. There's two b- bank robbers. Yo, if we're, if we're gonna, I was gonna say, if we're gonna talk about Scalise, we also need to talk about Artie Van. Yeah. So the two of them, who who do you have as Scalise? Bobby Cannavale. I'm not. He has been in quite them. a few mob uh, movies and TV shows. He was in Boardwalk Empire. He was in The Irishman. He plays uh, the restaurant owner and butcher. He he's oh, a classic. Okay, yeah, this uh Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also plays he's uh I believe he's the um the cop in Ant-Man, right? The 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 Yeah. This guy is perfect. I also think it's good because he's I I think he's like in his like 50s maybe, but he he has a good like middle age ground, you know, to to sort yeah. of uh j- just put a little bit of gray in his hair in his hair and I can see him as a skull. Sure, sure. Okay, who did you have? So for Scalise, I put William Fitchner. William William Fitchner is the guy that plays the G-Man in Armageddon. He goes up as a astronaut, but he's the guy that pulls the gun, and uh, he's also the uh, bank teller in ben. Dark Knight. In the very the opening of Dark Knight, he's the one that comes out and yells at the Joker. Yeah, he was in the Perfect Storm uh, as well. Another yeah, he's in New everybody. Wait, I mean, if if you w- listeners, if you look this guy up, you'll recognize him immediately. He's that guy. He's the guy that you you don't know his name, but he's that guy. You know him from so many. Yeah, movies. I he was he's great. I I really like him in pretty much any movie. I think he brings something kind of kind of neat to and, it. And I think now that he's older, I think now that he's older, he he fits that like mobster look. Yeah, he he was. Um, a, and for his, I'm hmm? oh, sorry, oh, I was gonna say point out he was also in Heat, which was a good bank robbery movie. Yes. As his partner, I as Artie Van, I cast Gary Durden. Gary Durden is the guy that played uh, Warwick in the original CSI. Oh, that would be that would be good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that Artie Van actually has like many lines in it. He, and again, this is sort of the the story. It's it's people talking about other people and kind of like, you know. Right, but I could I could see I could see Gary Durden as a nice sidekick for a bank robbery. Yeah, I I that would work. I picked steve buscemi for this <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i just figured you know what like if if you're gonna adapt this and Artie van is again he's described as sort of like there's something a little strange about him you know like he's a good guy he's reliable but he's sort of like i don't like he might turn over on someone i just thought it'd be kind of a cool thing to throw into the movie you know okay we, we talked about this last one so there there are several bank managers in this 
but let's talk about the featured bank manager, the one. That- so I cast two. I cast. I cast two. I cast the one that you would get the most time with, which is the one that goes off successfully. The first bank robbery we mm-hmm. see, you get the most face time with that manager because he gets blindfolded and taken along for the ride, and released in the middle of a field. Um, so uh, for him, I cast Chris Parnell. Chris Parnell, the, the SNL alum, would be perfect as a. All right, yeah, I'm gonna go along with everything you say. Let's just do this kind of a. A person in a suit. Okay, I picked out for the bank manager role for the for the main featured one like that, James Spader. Oh, that's good too. Yeah, he'd just be you know like he could perform it well. I think he'd do well. He's a little bit older now. Well, he's older nowadays. Um, I do like your casting though of uh, Chris Chris Parnell. Parnell. Yeah. I think because he has. I think Parnell would be a good. A good turn to the entire. Everyone, just do what they say. You know, there there would be an opportunity for some comic relief there, which I think mm-hmm. would would be important in a movie like this that's pretty dark and. It, it, yeah, it'd be a nice way to break up some tension. I think there could be some funny funny lines with him blindfolded in the backseat of a car. Uh, and then I also cast I also cast the bank manager that gets dead, and um, I cast Ian De Casticker. <laughs> Good, good, good luck typing that without spelling it. Um, he, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Agents of Shield, but he played the like techie guy in Agents of Shield. Um, I can, I can see him once again as like a young bank manager in a suit that maybe kind of smarmy, kind of pushes the the alarm button and oh no, I didn't do anything. Yeah, I. So I think for my second bank manager or bank employee. I was just actually thinking this one off the top of my head. I, I would like to see Bill Hader, since we're casting from SNL. Oh, now we're doing SNL people. Sure. All right. Yeah, Sherry O'Terry, or uh, I want to see, you know, uh, <laughs> Michael Mike Myers. He's just a good thing, good guy to cast for, for a small role. And I also think it'd be there'd be something very shocking about seeing him getting shot on film. You know, it would... That's very true, actually. Someone, someone like Bill Hader that people have a fondness for having him surprisingly get killed Mm -hmm. would have a nice emotional pull to it which is tricky because you're not the emotional pull isn't because of what you've seen in the movie the emotional pull is how you uh, associate to them in other roles yeah and i could see the it it being shot is a very like what did you did you just hit the alarm he's like no i didn't hit it and then they're like he's like yeah you know uh, yes you did and he's like no i didn't and then just like bam 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 bill Hader's dead on the yeah. ground and it's like holy shit that just went from zero to 100 pretty quickly yeah um and the, i i i cast a couple extra people i don't i don't think you had picks for this but i uh, i went ahead and cast the two attorneys at the end okay good and uh for for the defense attorney i cast uh uh larry minetti larry minetti used to play rick in magnum pi <laughs> and now he's quite a bit more bloated and he would fit in well as either an attorney or as a mobster. Uh, so I could totally see him as like a mob attorney. I almost put him in the role of Dylan until I thought about how much I love Cole Meany. And then for the prosecuting attorney, uh, the ever wonderful Sigourney Weaver would be just cutting during that discussion at the end about, no, 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 you're not going to get the plea. I'm not going to get that. That is an excellent selection. Yeah. One yeah. thing to consider in all these castings is that many of them, you would have to have them performing Boston accents. And there have been some pretty, you know, not good Boston accents in the history of film. 
Now, I don't think you would have to have all of them with the Boston Nets. I would, I would expect Eddie Coyle and Jackie sure. Brown and Dylan sure. and at least one other character to have a Boston accent. Maybe the bank manager. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty good, two pretty good casts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to watch the film someday. Yeah, well, like I said, we'll we'll do a follow up episode. If 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 not a full if not a full audio file that people can download and listen to as a companion to the movie, as just a, a follow up uh, episode that we review it on. But uh, before we leave, we have a thing here that we're going to start doing, where we rate our books on a scale, our white sneaker rating method. Uh, how many white sneakers would you? Would you give the Friends of Eddie? Cole? Okay, so we're rating this as a dad lit book. Yeah, which which is tricky because I thought about this. I would, I as a on a normal rating scale, I would rate this pretty high. But as a dad lit, it might not make it to the top. It doesn't have a lot of the kind of as we pointed out, like more outrageous features of dad lit. If we were to quickly go through a checklist of common things in a, a dad we wouldn't lit have book, many. It does not. <laughs> Yeah, but I do think that this has a certain grittiness to it, and it was very popular when it came out. It was made into a movie with some actors who are kind of like like Peter Boyle and Robert Mitchum are beloved by many generations, but especially generations of uh, men who are now in their kind of sixties. This has a quality to it that is dad lit. I would give this. Hmm, I don't know. It's o- it's always so easy to say like seventy five, three out of four. Um, I think our I think armchair detectives would love this book. Dads who tell their kids stories about bank robbers they knew when they were kids would really like it. So I'll give it a seventy nine. White sneakers. Oh, we're going on a not, we're going off of ninety nine again. That's such a big. <laughs> uh, and one ski mask. See, here's the deal. So I would if if I were to rate this as a regular book, I'd give it five out of five machine guns, but no ammo. <laughs> uh, but if we're going on the white sneaker method, I think I'm actually going to lower it a bit because, like I said, it doesn't it doesn't check all of our boxes on our checklist. I think I would give it closer if we're going on our scale of 100, like a 66. Okay, two two out of three about. Yeah, uh, 66 white track suits. Okay, before <laughs> before we go, I want to ask you a question, a very important question. If you were a bank robber. Would you wear a ski mask, like the traditional, you know, like with the eye holes uh, ski mask, or would you wear a sort of stocking over your head, you know, that kind of makes your features seem weird? What would you what would you wear? I don't I don't see why you wouldn't wear a ski mask, because why would you want to distort your features instead of just completely hiding them? However, being that I spent some time in New York, ski masks are very, very very hot. I think I'd go for the stocking, just purely out of comfort. Yeah, and you can crumple up the stocking and, like, throw it away, and, like, it's a very small, light piece of equipment. I mean, not that the ski mask is heavy, but it is sort of like, I don't know. Just put on the stocking. If you're wearing pants, take your shoe off, put the stocking on, put your shoe back on, now (laughs) you've hidden the stocking very effectively. I would say I would go with... I don't know. Are we planning a bank robbery right now? Well, if we listen, if we're planning a bank robbery, we have a lot more options. We could wear Halloween masks. We could, you know, do whatever we want. I would probably go with this stocking. Inflatable T-Rex costume. <laughs> has that ever been done? <laughs> that has to have been done. Or it, it needs to be done. We're the, we're the T-Rex ba- bandits. Uh, well, because then, then when you get shot by the cop, it's very comically deflating. It's... 
Or what if you had on like the inflatable T-Rex, but you have like a tactical vest with like a- like an ammo clips on it, like on top of it? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my god, you'd have to find one that would fit around it, though. Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. Like a, a plus size tactical vest. You gotta go to big and tall for that. Well, my my answer would I would be wearing the stocking as well because I think it's I think there's something alarming about the face mask about the ski mask but i think there's there's it's more frightening the stocking is a sort of it turns your face almost into like an alien face and it, it hits that uncanny valley that's really uncomfortable yeah it, it probably inspires more fear i don't know i could who knows but yeah all right well thank you for joining us for this episode of dad lit and we will see you all next time yeah uh be sure to check us out online at uh, the following places that i will edit in, in a second <laughs> Uh, have a good one, everybody. Take it easy. Dadlit is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. If you wish to contact us, you can find us at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com and on Instagram at dadlitpodcast. Thank you for listening.